First Samuel chapter 13 or chapter 15 this evening. If you're with us this evening without a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now and they have a Bible in their hands. Just get your hand up so you can get their attention and they'll love to get a Bible into your hands. We want you to not only hear the Word but also to uh, see the Word with your own eyes uh, this evening. First Samuel chapter 15 in our journey through the Scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. Back in chapter 13, Samuel the prophet had declared that because of King Saul's disobedience to the commandments of God and his disobedience to Samuel's commandment to him to wait uh, for Samuel to arrive to offer the sacrifice, but he took on a role to himself that was uh, limited really only to the priests and he offered up a sacrifice and, and uh, when he was confronted by his sin by uh, Samuel the prophet he defended himself with this onslaught of excuses for his wrongdoing and his sin and the Lord spoke to Saul through Samuel on that, uh, at that event and declared that Saul's kingdom was not to continue and what God was communicating was that there would not be a line of kings that would come through Saul's uh, bloodline so there wouldn't be any kind of dynasty that would occur uh, through him he would be a one-time king and that God would then choose another bloodline through which uh, to bring the kings of Israel and then in this chapter, as we come to chapter 15, it looks like God is saying much the same thing, but it's a little bit different here when he is going to rebuke King Saul. And in this chapter, we come to an even greater deliberate disobedience on the part of King Saul concerning God's commandments. And uh, Samuel is going to rise up and speak to Saul and declare that not only is God not going to use his bloodline to bring a series of kings for Israel, but that he has rejected Saul's individual kingship and reign, and that he's going to bring it uh, to an end. Chapter 15, verse 1. And Samuel also said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. And now therefore heed the voice of the words of the Lord. And thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up out of Egypt. And now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So the Lord gives King Saul a command to utterly destroy the Amalekites and he, Samuel delivers that message to King Saul there in verse 1. And it's interesting that God prefaces his commandment to Saul with a very strong warning. He said, now therefore take heed uh, the voice uh, of the words of the Lord. Whenever God comes to us with a warning... And, and basically what Samuel is saying to Saul is, listen to what God is saying here. He's, he's not 
wasting words. He's not, uh, he, he, he's to be taken seriously. He, he's not just saying things to just be saying things. Whenever God comes to us and he says something in the form of a warning or a caution or a, listen, really take me seriously in what I'm telling you here, he's not, again, just wasting his breath. He says those kind of things to us because he knows us very, very well and he knows that this needs to be said to us in order to have an appropriate sobriety about what it is that he's speaking to us. It is so easy in the Christian life to crash and burn and Saul is going to crash and burn in his life and he's going to crash and burn in this chapter but it's so easy after we've crashed and burned or driven off of a cliff to then at that point in time look back and recognize all the warnings that God gave us all along so that wouldn't happen and that we just kind of blew through and didn't take seriously. So when God speaks to us in this way, and really the volume of the book ought to be viewed in this way, He's to be taken seriously. Saul is, is given this strong warning and he's going to disregard everything that God tells him to do here uh, anyway. So he would have avoided the train wreck if he had, had just listened to the Lord and listened to the strength of, of God's warning even before he gave the command there in verses 2 and 3. Now in verse 2, we have the command, the reason for the command that God has uh, given to Saul in order to take the children of Israel and to utterly destroy there in verse 3. What they're to do is there in verse 3, go and attack Amalek. That was a group of people who were descendants of Esau. And the call was to utterly destroy all. And you can circle in your Bible, utterly and all. There's, God is perfectly clear on what it is that he's uh, calling on uh, Saul to do here. The reason for the commandment is there in verse 2, I will punish, God said, Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. And so when the Lord delivered the children of Israel uh, from their Egyptian slavery, they were on their way to Canaan, on the way to the promised land, and the Amalekites came in and they attacked uh, the rear portion of this long uh, kind of train of people that were making their way to the promised land. Remember, we're talking about two to three million people. So at the end of this long line of people, I don't know how long that line is. It's a long line of people. But at the end of that line, you've got the elderly, you've got the sick, you've got uh, mothers of of small children, you've got small children, you've got infants, and it was just a cowardly, terrible, no fear of God thing that the Amalekites did to the children of Israel. Went in, attacked them from behind, slaughtered them from behind. And the intent was that they would completely destroy the children of Israel. But God gave them victory uh, in order that they would not defeat the, the children of Israel. And, and God, and all of that happened uh, you know, as they were leaving out of, of Egypt. And then, uh, in, it, it, and God records it in the book of Exodus, also in the book of, of Deuteronomy. 
And so they attack God's people as if these people have no God that's looking after them, as if they were, um, you know, shepherdless and, and that it didn't matter. These are just people that you can pick on and, and uh, who will care about it. There's no God that will step up and protect them and, and no God who will take uh, personally how these people are being treated. But at that time, God did judge their treatment of his children very, very personally and he promised in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 17 through 19, he promised that one day he was going to judge the Amalekites for what they did, and now the time has come. And so the Lord is going to treat Amalek with the same kind of severity that they showed toward the children of Israel, toward uh, God's people. God waits uh, really about 400 years to pour his judgment out on the Amalekites. He's very, very patient in his judgment. He's very, very long-suffering toward them, but his word against them hadn't changed. And I have no doubt that the Amalekites must have constituted a grave danger to the children of Israel, known only to God at the time. We're going to see that once... Uh, uh, Agag is killed a little bit later in the chapter that he's got even recent blood on his hands. And so apparently as God looks at these people, he sees that there's not a one of them that are going to be any good. Not a one of them is going to repent. They are as a people like a cancer in human history that has to be surgically removed or they'll be a threat to the health and the future of all of mankind. You and I don't have that kind of insight you and I aren't able to look at a people and come to that kind of a conclusion. God is able to look at the beginning and the end and everything in between and outside of the restraints of time. And he looks at history, the Bible says, he looks at our lives as a tale that's already been told. He can look at a people and say, these people will be the destruction of all other people in this region or in the world unless I eradicate them. And so he eradicates them. It's kind of like the illustration that I mentioned back uh, when he called for the destruction of the, the Canaanites and the other people that were in the land so that the children of Israel could, could then uh, have the land of, of Canaan. The Lord waited many years for the destruction of those inhabitants of the land. It's kind of like um, if you have a, a dog that is rabid, it, it has rabies and it's foaming at the mouth. And a dog that has rabies has... Um, the seed for its own destruction already sown within it. It's going to die. There's no question about it. It's going to die of the thing that it's afflicted of. The only question is, is how many innocent people is it going to bite and uh, infect with rabies and then these innocent lives are brought down with, with the rabid dog. And so if you see a dog like that that's making its way through one of the parks or something in Modesto and some police officer pulls out a gun and shoots it down in the park, nobody should squawk or, or have a complaint about it. Everyone would consider him a hero for protecting all of the children on the playground. I believe, firmly believe, that God can look at people or a group of people or a family or however He wants to look at it in the world and from His particular view of it look and say, these people are no good. These people will do no good to a person, to their children, to anything associated 
with them. They will only destroy and damage and hurt innocent people in the world and that he can then come in and bring his judgment against them. I don't have a problem with that. I believe there are those kind of people in the world. I believe there are those kinds of groups of people in the world. I can't identify them, but he can. The fact of the matter is, sometimes people have, a trouble, have trouble with God's judgment. The fact of the matter is, a bigger judgment than this is in the future of the world. And it's called the Great Tribulation. And God is going to bring a judgment for three and a half years upon this earth that's not going to be limited to one group of people, but be worldwide. When he looks at the world... And his saints that are tribulation saints have been slaughtered for their faith in Christ and not taking the mark of the beast and all of this treatment's gone on and he looks in and he speaks to the angels and he says, take out, you know, the, the uh, hooks and for the bringing in of the, vin uh, of the, the uh, grapes of the vine of the wrath. And he says, now take them and plunge them into the earth and bring the fullness of my judgment upon this earth. He's going to do it. And so here is a group of people that the Lord had given them 400 years for something to change. Nothing had changed. They were on the wrong side of the, the covenant that God had made with Abraham. I'll bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who curse you. And now the command is given to utterly uh, destroy them. God's judgment meted out against them. Verse 4, And so Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers, 10,000 men of Judah. So he's got 210,000 soldiers. The point is he has all of the manpower he needs to do what God has called him to do. It isn't that he doesn't have enough resources. And then Saul came to a city of Amalek and he lay in wait in the valley. And Saul said to the Kenites, another group of people, Moses' father-in-law was a Kenite. He married a Kenite, you might remember. And so Saul said to the Kenites who were living among the people of Amalek or in the region, he said to the Kenites, go depart, get down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them, for you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. And so the Kenites departed from among the, the uh, Amalekites. And so here is the warning. The uh, Kenites had been nothing but good to the children of of Israel and Saul comes in and says this isn't anything to do with you and he said get out judgment is going to come upon these people and and so don't find yourself among them so again this reveals to us that God's judgment isn't a rash judgment it isn't a reckless judgment but it's very very limited very very deliberate very measured very precise only aimed at the guilty not one person beyond that and so the attack was begun in verse 7. And Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. And so the attack is on. And he also took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive. What does he not understand about utterly and all? He spares the king of the Amalekites, and then he utterly destroyed all of the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the rest of the sheep and oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good. 
and they were unwilling uh, to utterly destroy all of these, uh, this good livestock. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. So they were, you notice in verse 9, they were unwilling. It wasn't something that they couldn't do. They were unwilling uh, to do it. They just looked and said, look at all this great livestock the Amalekites have. Man, it's just, it just pure. And so they spare it. It's just pure I don't care what God says, disobedience. But anything that was just junky, they, they destroyed it in obedience to the Lord. One of the most important, this is one of the most important passages in all of the Bible on the subject of obeying God. And it contains one of the most important lessons that we can have planted in our heart on the subject of obedience to the Lord. And that lesson is... Partial obedience is disobedience. Partial obedience is disobedience. And that was a lesson that Saul never got. That was a lesson that he never ever took seriously when God spoke to him. And I'll tell you, there are many, many people like him today and it's important for that to search our own hearts and we'll let it search our hearts this evening so they sacrificed all the animals that were lousy and or they killed all the animals that were lousy and nobody wanted and they kept the ones that were valuable and desirable so here you have the kind of person whose obedience to God is based upon something other than obeying because God has commanded it So they obey God when it doesn't cost them anything to do so, but when it costs them something, it's going to require some self-sacrifice to obey God. They simply don't do that. And that becomes the characteristic of their life. And they can become so self-deceived, and it's in all of us from Adam and Eve, by the way, so self-deceived that we can actually think it's okay with God. The Bible says we're to obey God under all circumstances. When it's hard to obey Him, when it's easy to obey Him, when it costs me something physically and materially to obey Him, when it costs me nothing physically or materially in order to obey Him. These are the kind of, of choices that are around us every single day. Do we obey the Lord no matter what He asks us to do, whatever it costs us? Now notice in verse uh, 10, then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. Samuel is some distance away at this point, so it's a supernatural revelation that God is giving to Samuel. And he said, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried all night to the Lord. Saul's disobedience hurt the hearts of two people. Number one, it hurt the heart of God. All sin is first and foremost against God. When David, later on in Israel's history, when he sinned in his adultery with Bathsheba and then made arrangements for her husband Uriah the Hittite to be killed, and he prayed his prayer of repentance to the Lord, he said, against you and you only have I sinned. All sin breaks the heart of God on the part of God's people. He has a heart. He is is heart engaged in our lives and in our personal relationship with Him. And this broke His heart. And not only broke the heart of God, 
but it grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord all night. You think about that. Maybe he didn't have to get up for work the next day. But all night is a long time to cry for another person. And you know, the temptation might be for someone to look and say, well, that Saul, you could see this coming from a mile off, and he's just a good for nothing, and let's get on with the next part of God's plan. But that wasn't Samuel's heart towards Saul. When Samuel looked at Saul, he saw all of the potential that Saul had to be good, to be a hero, a giant in Israel's history. And when he sees all of that potential, what he could have been, just come to nothing, it just broke his heart. There's a beautiful picture of of Samuel's uh, heart here. He didn't hate him, he didn't dislike him, wasn't quick desiring to be rid of him at all. He was uh, heartbroken that that this is the the end that his uh, life uh, came to. I'll tell you, our sin affects more people than we realize. It affects God and it affects other people who's, who we will never know have been affected by our sin. And notice Samuel's rebuke of Saul, verse 12. And so Samuel rose early in the morning. He left from where he was to go and to meet Saul. And it was told Samuel, as he's trying to find him, Saul went to Carmel, not up in the north, but a Carmel that was located in that region down in the south. And indeed, he has set up a monument for himself. And he's gone on around, passed by, and gone down to Gilgal. He takes and he disobeys the Lord, offers the Lord partial obedience, which is disobedience, And then immediately after the battle, he can't wait to build a monument to himself as the hero of the battle. I mean, in his mind, he he is absolutely convinced that he has uh, done something uh, just terrific and there shouldn't be any complaint by God. He's so uh, happy with himself that he builds this monument in honor to himself. But so much for the modesty that he possessed before the coronation. (laughs) You've heard the story of the church who gave their pastor a medal for being so humble and then took it away when he wore it. So that's kind of what we've got going on here. Don't ever give it to me. I'll wear it. So we're going to see in a moment that, that God views uh, this so-called victory very different from how Saul viewed the, the victory. And so here's the exchange between Samuel and Saul. Then Samuel went to Saul and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. He's still got the God talk going. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. So he's so excited to see Samuel, and he's fully convinced that he's been completely faithful to God's uh, commandment. And I mean, he's absolutely self-deceived. In his mind, he's been completely obedient, and this is our capacity for self-deception. I love the Word of God. James, one of my greatest, one of the funnest images that God gives in His Word for the Word is that it's a mirror. Mirror, mirror, on the wall. Who's the fairest of them all? Take your time answering. And then we begin to read the Word and we go, oh, that blemish. Oh, this thing over here. And, and, but what it does is it protects us from self-deception. 
Do you believe you have the same capacity for self-deception in the area of obedience that Saul had? I believe it of you. I believe it of me. Again, we're descendants of Adam and Eve. It's there. And one of the great things the Word of God does is it keeps us from deceiving ourselves. We are, I mean, we don't even need the world and the devil to take us out. Our flesh is powerful enough. But you get that unholy triunity together, and it's a really tough one. But we're our own worst enemy. And, and we're never a greater danger to ourselves than when we start to uh, consider partial obedience to be full obedience to God. And the Word of God keeps us away uh, from, from all of that. I guess it's all, everything's okay if you throw a little praise the Lord in it or blessed are you of the Lord. At least that's what Sam, Saul seems to think. Now Samuel has a very inconvenient kind of... Um, uh, observation here related to all of this and uh, and he uh, declares to him there in verse 14 but Samuel said what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen which I hear this is called a real inconvenient truth where here he is he's he's sitting there and and, uh, and Samuel says in essence, I'd like to believe you, but all around it's I learned all that in the second grade. You know, you've learned everything that's really valuable by the second. Or what is that book anyway? In it, so, but oh, you learned it in kindergarten. Was it? Is it during the snack part of kindergarten or the whole kindergarten thing? Well, anyway, so here's this. Obviously, you know, the, the undeniable evidence of his disobedience here. And I'll tell you, it would be funny if it wasn't so tragic. This guy's talking straight. This guy believes that, him, that he's right on with, in, in obeying the Lord. It's amazing here. It's funny, the Bible teaches in Numbers chapter 32, be sure your sin will find you out. And here is the sin of Saul finding him out. And I'll tell you, we can be sure that any willful disobedience on our part toward the Lord will pop out and make itself known at the most inconvenient time. The world's worst time, like these sheep do, and these oxen do for, for Saul here. One of the problems with Saul here is he's a king, he's a leader. So what he's doing is this leaven in his life is going to impact a lot of other people. And what he's modeling before God's people is, it's okay to obey God when it's easy. And it's okay to disobey Him when it costs you something. And God doesn't care about obedience or disobedience any more than we care about obedience and disobedience in our flesh. He has absolutely no conviction here. And the reason he didn't view disobedience as a big deal in his life is because he didn't view disobedience as a big deal in his life. How would you and I view disobedience in our life this evening. I'm not, I have no interest in laying the lashes on this evening. But I tell you, we can find ourselves in this chapter very easily. The body of Christ can find itself in this chapter very, very easily. Where disobedience just becomes no big deal. Week after week, month after month, year after year, 
And the whole time we're being set up for something terrible, as we'll see in three hours. And Saul said, they have brought, this is his excuse now, this whole flow of excuses that comes out. They, the people, it's not my fault, they brought them from the Amalekites. The people, they spared the best of the sheep in the auction to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have utterly destroyed. And so here he is, this again, this excuse machine. And the glaring problem with his excuse here is you can't blame the people. You are the king. You have the authority to make the people obey God in this, in this issue. So you can't evade the, the responsibility here. But he still tries to give the excuses again as we saw last time or the week before. It is his, every time God confronts him with his sin, out comes this torrent of excuses. And these excuses always kept him one step away from repentance, the repentance that he, he needed in order to, to his life to be saved. And this whole thing of giving excuses, we've talked about the Garden of Eden, haven't we already? We're descendants of Adam and Eve. Giving excuses to God when he confronts us with our sin is as old as the Garden, isn't it? Remember following the sin of Adam and Eve and God came up to Adam and confronted him over his disobedience? What did Adam say? It was the woman you gave me. What are you talking about? God, you remember, you and I, we were doing just great. And then you made that woman. And in one sentence, he puts, him, he puts two people, God and Eve, between him and responsibility for his sin. It's just flow. So, Lord, you and Eve got some stuff to work out over there. I'm going to be right over here and you get that done. You can come talk to me. And that was his excuse. You know, Eve's excuse was, you know, the, the serpent made me do it. The devil made me do it. So this whole thing of just, you know, bringing out the excuses and, and uh, in order to protect ourselves is as old as the Garden of, of, uh, uh, of Eden. The problem with being a blame shifter, uh, making an excuse every time God tries to convict us of our sin, is that it means that we're headed for very, very deep trouble and very, very deep hurt. Because if we do that, we're simply protecting sin while it's working to destroy our lives. James wrote in James chapter 1, and, and he said, Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, it brings forth death, spiritual death, physical death. Do not be deceived, my brethren. And so he's making excuses for a sin that God knows is setting him up in order to be destroyed. And every time we protect a sin with an excuse. We are protecting a sin that is working to destroy us. And Samuel said to Saul, Be quiet, and I'll let, I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, Speak on. And so Samuel said, When you were little in your own eyes, were you not the head of the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? I love that passage related to disobedience. If I fall into a pattern of living in willful disobedience to God's commandments, it means I'm lifted up in pride. I'm no longer little in my own eyes. 
I'm smarter than God. I'm wiser than God. And the Bible says that pride comes before destruction. So uh, 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 a fall comes before a haughty spirit, but pride comes before destruction. And so here he is, and it's a characteristic of any of our lives, is now we're lifted up in pride any time we think that we can live in willful disobedience to the Lord and that uh, it's, it's A-OK and it's, it's not a problem. And so the Lord, now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? Samuel's trying to give him one more chance. To, Don't give me the excuse routine one more time. I'm confronting you with this. Give him one more chance to confess his sin and repent. And Saul said to Samuel, But I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me, and I've brought back Agag, king of Amalek. I, I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. He, he doesn't get it. You can't utterly destroy the Amalekites and spare the king in order that you can have him as a trophy and bragging rights for what a great general you were in the battle. And yet, he, he can't see it. Here is, is the self-deception related to this kind of thing. I can't tell you how many times, hasn't been a million times, but it has been plenty of times in 24 years as a pastor, where I have had people tell me, you, you just show them right in the Word, please, the Bible says this related to what it is that you're doing, and they'll look you right in the eye and they'll say, I have a peace about the peace of God about what it is that I'm doing, even though it violates the Word of God. I've seen this thing over and over and over again as a Christian. Anytime you feel that you have peace from God while operating in willful disobedience against the Word of God, you and I are self-deceived. It's amazing. It's just, you look at it and you say, man, how can you go there? But he, he goes there. And then he says, but the people, again, the excuses, the people took the best, took the plunder, the sheep and the oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed. It's all their fault. And, but they did it. Listen, honest engine. To, is it, can you say that? Okay, today I've got a political correctness. Sorry to any of you Native Americans. To, but they to, should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. We, we spared these things, but we were just going to, uh, only in order to, to sacrifice them uh, to, to the Lord. And so, uh, amazing, I mean, just jaw-dropping in, in terms of his, his, his self-deceit. And so Samuel, here's a response, one of the strongest responses to disobedience in all of the world, and a friend to many of us in all of the Bible, many, a friend to many of us, but, and hopefully a, a friend to all of us here uh, this evening as we would study it. Samuel responds to this disobedience in this way. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? He's basically telling Saul, listen, God doesn't want your sacrifice. He doesn't want your offerings. He doesn't want you to slaughter this, slaughter that, protect this, do drug deals, but tithe off it. He's not interested in any of that. How can he enjoy that kind of stuff? 
How can he enjoy anything that you would give to him that comes out of a disobedient life? So he's just trying to wake him up to things. Think about, uh, you, you know, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Apart from, apart from obedience, anything a child would do for a parent means nothing to the parent. Dad, I got you a new Jaguar XKE. And they're living like the devil. They take it and return it. Stop living like the devil and live for God and then come and bring it to me. It means nothing to me until you, you're walking with God. Nothing means anything to us unless a child's being obedient to us. So we're raising them. And it's the same thing true of our Heavenly Father. He did nothing that we can give Him. Church attendance or giving this thing or giving that or doing this or any of those things means anything to Him if it's not marked by a life of obedience. We understand it in our own lives. That's true of God too. As the Lord has great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed, that is to listen to God with the idea of obeying Him and to heed than the fat of rams. And the fat of rams was the, the finest part of, of the sacrifice. And so, the, so better than the finest part of any animal that would be sacrificed to Him, God said, is to listen to my word and to obey it. He is, God, Samuel isn't saying that they weren't to sacrifice to the Lord. They were, but not of, of what belonged to the Amalekites. He's just saying that no sacrifice from this, this stuff means anything uh, to him. And so very frequently as Christians we can begin to think that, well, I can be disobedient over in this area because I'll be doubly obedient over here or I'll offer God some kind of a sacrifice or some, some kind of a, a, of a thing, serve in some area in the church, attend church, you know, every day of the week, twice during the week and, and all, and somehow that'll, that'll cover that. And the Lord says, no, uh, to heed uh, is, is better than the fat of rams, for rebellion is, is the sin of witchcraft. Now, if our, our dear brother Tom Hinman said this, he'd have my attention. I really respect what he has to say. But this is God saying that rebellion, disobedience, is, is the sin of witchcraft. Well, gosh, Lord, I wouldn't consider my disobedience in this area of my life to be on a par with witchcraft. I mean, I'm no witch. I'm no warlock, and yet that's how the Lord looks at it. Get it so strong. It's not for you, it's for me. People that have a capacity for self-deception, a rationalizing of sin, we need things to be this strong. The interesting thing about Saul is before he gets done, we're going to see he got rid of every witch in the land. When he goes to Endor, I know it sounds like Star Wars, but at the end of his life he wants to take and, and uh, uh, conjure up Samuel to ask him a question because God's gone silent on him and he goes into this seance with this witch over there and all and she's worried about the fact that this might be Saul when in fact it was Saul and how Saul has rid the entire country of witches. Saul was very hard on witches. He was ruthless on witches. Why? Because he wasn't a witch. 
It didn't require anything of him to be hard on witches. He had no temptation toward that particular area. But he was very lenient upon his sin. And the Lord comes in and he says, listen, for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. And stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. And so the Lord then speaks the consequence here now to his individual kingship of being rejected now. By God. Now the interesting thing in the rest of the story in this whole thing is it's interesting to realize in 2 Samuel chapter 1 verses 8 through 10 that ultimately Saul is going to be killed by an Amalekite. He will die at the hands of an Amalekite, the people he was supposed to utterly destroy. And it's a beautiful kind of picture. The uh, Amalekites are a picture Uh, and a type of the flesh in the Old Testament because they're descendants of Esau, the brother of Jacob. And Esau, you remember, he sold his birthright for a bowl of pottage, a bowl of red, a bowl of chili. Sold his whole birthright, his whole spiritual position in his family for a bowl of red. And he's just a picture of a man who's more concerned about the fleshly appetites than the spiritual things. And the Amalekites were descendants of of uh, Esau and the Lord had had called here Saul to utterly destroy uh, the uh, Amalekites and ultimately the one of the Amalekites is going to kill him and the problem with feeding our flesh and and keeping our flesh strong through disobedience again is that that flesh is always working to destroy us through sin and 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 Again, we're keeping something alive that is looking to kill us one day. Our flesh is a great danger uh, to ourselves, one of the greatest dangers we'll face in life. That's why Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans chapter 8. And he said, Therefore, brethren, we're debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live Romans chapter 13, verse 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh. Mortify the deeds of the flesh, Paul also wrote. Cold-blooded murder. Make no provision for the, the flesh. Don't feed it. Starve it to death. Because it will uh, rise up and its whole desire is to ultimately destroy us. And the whole picture here, the typology, a picture of sin, is the Amalekites. The one thing God called them to destroy, ultimately he left it alive and it came back and destroyed him. And then Saul said to Samuel, I've sinned. For I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words. So he confesses the sin, but he doesn't repent. If he repented, he'd slaughter all the animals and he would kill Agag, which Samuel's going to do in just a moment. So it's just a confession, but he's not willing to repent. And so here's his excuse again. And the reason that I I did all of this is because I feared the people and I obeyed their voice. Peer pressure isn't something that's limited to youth, is it? It goes on all the way through our lives. Especially when you get into some of these kind of positions. There's great pressure that can be put on a person. Peer pressure. And so he, he says, listen, I, I gave in to the voice of the people. He's still blame shifting. And now, therefore, please pardon my sin. Return with me that I may worship the Lord. And so he asks 
Samuel to go to the worship service and the sacrifice and all that was supposed to be offered to the Lord related to the the battle. And so, would you go with me to this meeting? All the elders are going to be there. All the priests are going to be there. I know I'm walking in willful disobedience to the Lord and not even you can get me to repent at this moment. But I want to put in a good appearance in front of the people. I don't mind being wrong with God as long as I'm right with people and can put on that appearance. That's, That's where he is. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you've rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned around to go away, Saul seized the edge of his robe and tore. That's, I mean, he really grabbed uh, Samuel, tore the robe. And Samuel had a prophecy related to it instantly by the Lord. The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the strength of Israel, speaking of the Lord, will not lie nor relent, for he is not a man that he should relent. In other words, this judgment upon you as a king that is irreversible. And then he said, I have sinned, still no willingness to repent, yet honor me now. I mean, the, the giving, it, it's so easy to, to fall into a life where I'm, I'm willing to privately be disobedient to the Lord as long as I can give the appearance in front of people that I'm a spiritual person. And that's what he's asking for. It's just very dangerous. He's, he, you can't make more mistakes than than he's making here in this area. I've sinned, yet honor me now, please, before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may worship the Lord your God. Not his God, your God, Samuel. And so Samuel, with this, turned back after Saul, and Saul worshipped the Lord. And then Samuel said, Bring Agag, king of the Amalekites, here to me. And so Agag came to him cautiously, and Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death has passed. He doesn't know what Samuel's going to do. Hey, you know, hey, everything okay with us? You know, as he's walking up to, to Samuel, he doesn't know which way this thing is going to go, whether he's going to get leniency or whether he's going to get judgment. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so your mother shall be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag in pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Saul, that's how you obey God's commandment. And then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house at Gibeah of Saul, ten mile distance between the two cities. And Samuel went no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Just ten mile distance between the two of them. Samuel never ever went to see Saul again. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Well, we'll stop there this evening and enjoy communion. Would you turn with me to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 as we just introduce communion this evening?